Welcome to the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Joe and Ron are self-proclaimed teacher nerds geeking out on all things education. They are looking to move educational practices out of the 1900s factory worker model to a student-driven classroom full of empathetic, creative, and collaborative students willing to take risks. Join them as they chat with educators from around the world, discussing educational tools, techniques, ideas, policies, and much more. Thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds. And now a word from a sponsor. Oh, have you heard about the nerds? What's the word? Teacher nerds. You can tweet them out on Twitter. You can find them on the gram. After listening to their podcast, you'd be sitting there like, bam, trying to take the teaching from one level to the next, reaching up to Canada and down to Mexico. Gotta go, teach nerds, start the show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. I'm Ron Nober. I'm Joe DePaulo. I am a technology teacher for third grade to eighth grade. And I teach third grade. And today our guest is back with us, Bobby Downs, Dr. Bobby Downs. Welcome back, Bobby. Thanks for having me again. It's it's my pleasure to be here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a trauma-informed classroom, um, which I think, you know, is a pretty poignant thing coming up on this school year. And we were just kind of saying it's going to be our third, third kind of school year involved in COVID. And we have a lot of other things going on. People have a lot of other things going on besides COVID. So I think it'll be a, a pretty poignant episode. Bobby was on before from a mindfulness episode. So our two yes mores, one no way is going to be mindfulness activities. You know, things that we, we may enjoy. It's time for two yes more, one no way. So... <laughs> My two yes mores, um, one is what's called a, a sashin um, in Zen, which is a full or half day meditation practice that I, I've gone to at a, a Zen monastery uh, close to my house. And the sashin is basically you are there, you are doing seated meditation. After a short period, you get up and you do walking meditation. You do meditative eating so you have lunch and it's completely quiet and you just focus on what you're eating and involves even work meditation so you may go out and do yard work and it's again completely silent and you just are mindful of everything that you're doing and it's it's amazing when you're doing you know when i was there doing it uh previously you're outside it's amazing when you are doing it the sounds that you hear the smells that come up, the the things that you see that you may never have noticed before because your mind was always thinking of something else. So that's that's my one uh, yes. My second is actually editing the podcast. It's very like I get into the zone. Time kind of passes quickly. Um, you you kind of get into that flow state when I'm editing uh, the podcast. Um, so that to me is is mindful. And then my one no way is, is a like guided meditation. I, I don't, I hear the voice and it almost distracts me from what I'm <laughs> supposed to be focusing on, which is being mindful. 
Um, so, so guided meditations don't really work for me. When you do the first, the first thing you said, the, the sushin, uh, is there instructions to start? I mean, does everyone gather and yeah, they'll, they'll, you know, have people who've never been to one before. Like they'll have maybe a half hour prior to give instruction, depending on if it's a full or half day, you may have a meeting with the Roshi, who's the teacher where you can, you know, where mm -hmm. you can ask questions or things like that. All right, Bobby, what about you? Your mindfulness activities. I want to take everything you just said and say mine's the opposite. <laughs> that, that's the great thing about mindfulness, right? Is there's so many different ways to, to practice it. Um, so my, my two yes mores is I love guided meditation. Um, so I am a huge fan of those. I have a hard time with the silence piece, right? That's something I, I've done, but I, I struggle with more and, and seek to improve upon. So anything guided meditation, particularly, I love the Calm app and they have um, sleep stories and I listen to every, to one every single night. So, and I've never made it through a full one. You know, I don't have a hard time going to sleep per se, but it just puts me in a state to be able to sleep better. So that would be one. And I think the the second one would be just spending time at the beach and, you know, and just kind of sitting there and, and listening to the ocean, right? Like, so there is a level of silence there, um, but just sitting there and, and watching the ocean or even just having ocean sounds, uh, I find to, to be um, peaceful, right? So maybe I'm part Moana, uh, <laughs> but uh, there, there's just something about the, the water. My no, I think would be seated silent meditation. So I have done like week long retreats, day long retreats. And, um, as much as I find them to be restorative, they're not my preference. So, yeah, so pretty much the opposite of what you're right. But that, <laughs> like you said, that is the beauty of mindfulness. There's, there's something everybody can find, I think. Yeah, yeah for sure. I I'm, and that's funny that you say that because one of your activities that you had us do was close our eyes and try and see if we could count that minute off by ourselves. <laughs> And uh, so it's surprising that you don't like that, which I could see why, because I definitely I think the only one in our group that was able to do it was Randy. Mm -hmm. I think Randy was and, and I know I was well over because um, I definitely get I get I lose track pretty easily, <laughs> easily, but very similar. I don't think I would like the guided meditation either. Uh, Ron, same thing, like you said, because it's always like someone's there, but it's almost like you, I might need someone there to keep me on track and everything right and that's it's it's funny because before i started this you know and and before we started our mindfulness journey i didn't really consider myself a mindfulness person and there's a pretty cool uh picture out there the difference between mindful and mindful like having your mind full mm -hmm. um so i was always definitely having my mind full with tons of things and i think you know after doing the research i'm going to start with my no way because i think this is very Anyone who knows me could probably pull this out of the hat. Like, yep, that's Joe. When they talk about feeling those feelings, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the feelings. And, and I know that's something that I am trying to get over per se, but I, I guess I'm not, I'm not going down without a good fight. I don't want to know, you know, <laughs> I don't want to know why I'm feeling a certain way. Um, I just, I know maybe I don't want to feel that way anymore. But I guess the only way to get there is to deal with the feelings and all the backstory. So that's kind of, <laughs> I know you need it, but if, if we're having something for no way, that's my no way. 
So then to go for the two things that I like, you know, one is, is the woodworking, but I started to notice like it was all like physical activities. So the woodworking, uh, surfing to me, like not just all the surfing, but when you catch that wave, cause like you talk about being in the flow and, and when things are happening and there's so many things happening all at once, it's like that, uh, we're reading a book about play and it's like that deep play it's enjoying, it's enjoyable, but there's so much, not mental stress, but thinking and, and, you know, contracting of muscles that you might not even use on a daily, but there's so much that goes on to just that simple act. And, and I feel like that's when I'm truly in that flow. Um, and then my other activity, which would be, you know, not something active, uh, Ron, you talked about, you know, editing the podcast. I like to use a GoPro, um, when I'm out there surfing and not just to be like, Hey, look at me surfing. I use those videos and I'm like, man, what can I do better? Like where, look at my stance here. You know, look what happens when I cross stepped here and the nose went under. So I start to use those videos as to, you know, try and get better, uh, when I'm out there so I can catch more waves and have more fun. And I'll go surfing from maybe 4.30 till eight or nine in the morning. And then I'm back by 10 and I'm on the couch from like 10 to two with the GoPro and the phone, you know, not even editing, just looking through those videos and it, and it goes by just like that. And I'm never worried about all the other things that might come with, you know, your daily life, looking into the mindfulness. I guess I was a little more into it than I had originally thought, or Bobby, you were just doing such a great job in those past two years uh, <laughs> that, that I, I, I feel as if I've come a long way. Let's go with the first one. I think you're doing better. <laughs> And I think I think people don't even realize they're practicing mindful activities when they are like that. You would ask, uh, you know, maybe a hundred people, are you doing mindfulness activities? And I think you might have half say no or more than half say no and come to realize they are. Oh, all right. Well, we, some mindful activities there. Yeah. And now we're going to take a little break, but we'll be back in a moment. These days, educational technology is everywhere. Choosing what tool works for your classroom and what's worth paying for is tough. Wouldn't it be great if there was a place where you could buy premium access to a bunch of tools at once? Think of it like test driving several cars before buying your favorite. Well, myedtechbundle.com is the first ever site where you can bundle together many of your favorite edtech tools and their tools are handpicked and vetted by three edtech experts. With MyEdTechBundle.com, you bundle the tools you want and get extended premium access in addition to each tool's normal free trial period. Visit MyEdTechBundle.com and get started today. And now back to the show. So I, I think, Bob, we reached out to you. You gave a presentation for our, our district about the trauma-informed classroom. And, you know, for me, there was a lot there and a, a lot, you know, I even saw for myself you know, things growing up in my childhood and that really hit home. And, and I think, you know, with us, like I said, going back to school, there's a lot of things that people may be bringing up and it, it may be students who haven't been in school for over what, 18 months, mm -hmm. teachers who may not have been in school for over 18 months, you know, so when we come and we're talking about like trauma, what is it that we're talking about? Can, can you explain a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so there's definitely like clinical definitions of trauma. And I think that's what a lot of people default to, right? Like that person must have post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. But really trauma is, and probably the best definition, though not a clinical definition I've heard, is anything that exceeds your ability to cope, right? And what I think is important about that is because we all have this threshold of what we can handle. 
right? So even our students, even if they're the same age, some have more protective factors or a higher level of resilience. So the same thing could happen to the three of us, but we all handle it differently. You know, so trauma is ultimately anything that we view as a traumatic experience or we feel as a traumatic experience. So there are things and Certainly, we can dive a little deeper into it that are classified as uh, specifically adverse childhood experiences. So there's categories like that. So physical and sexual abuse, forms of neglect, forms of substance abuse in the home, mental health in the home, uh, parents being incarcerated, all of those kinds of things. But really, there's a lot of other things, too, that could be considered traumatic. Um, So we look at the pandemic, right? So there's a lot of conversation in, in the trauma field. You know, is that trauma? And I tend to personally side with, yes, it is, right? It exceeded our ability to cope in a lot of different ways. It altered our lifestyle. It took a lot of things that were quote unquote normal and took that away. And when we think of other forms of trauma too, that's what it is. It's this is, and I hate using the word normal because what is normal, right? right? But we get into this routine or we get into a lifestyle or we have different expectations. And when that's altered, can we cope with it or can we not? right? What is that ability? So I think in a nutshell, that's what I would define as trauma. Um, when I, when I talk to teachers about it, when we see trauma in the classroom, it is those things, you know, um, divorce and divorce in and of itself isn't considered traumatic, but when coupled with other things or depending on the circumstances of the divorce, um, that could be trauma, uh, abuse in the home is trauma. As I mentioned before, neglect. I mean, all of these different kinds of things that we see with our students, or maybe we don't see with our students, but they're kind of manifesting themselves in behavior, that would be considered trauma as well. When we talk about trauma-informed classrooms, I often hear, well, if I have a student who have experienced trauma, well, my argument is you do have students who have experienced trauma. You might not know it, Right. right? But statistically, we have students who have experienced trauma. And if we were to classify uh, the pandemic as a traumatic experience or an adverse childhood experience, guess what? Every child that walks in the door in September has experienced at least one eighth adverse childhood experience. So hopefully that kind of puts it into a perspective for us. Yeah. And so would you even say, like, I was just thinking with, with like the pandemic, for instance, like, you know, a three month period of the pandemic may not be traumatic for someone, but over a year of, so even maybe a time difference Mm -hmm. can cause the trauma. Yeah. And and so that's a piece of it too. Like our bodies are wired, right? If you look at research, our bodies are wired to handle a certain amount of stress. Um, There's a lot of great things out there about like your surge capacity, like how much can you handle? And essentially like our body can handle something we could go through a grieving process if we lose someone. Maybe there's a, a natural disaster and we kind of go through that recovery process. The thing with the pandemic in and of itself is the longevity of it, not knowing when it's going to end, right? And kind of living in that constant mindset of what's next and, and having that level of uncertainty. Our minds and bodies aren't wired for that. So it's almost like again, it's always been on, right? That right. defense mechanism hasn't had that chance to not shut off, but maybe take a break. Right, exactly. So, and they're actually saying now, and this is something I, I, you know, I didn't share with your group because I think I came to you guys, you know, post pandemic, well, in the pandemic, right? Or or pre-pand, before we were kind of sitting here, but they're using this term languishing now. I don't know if you've heard it, 
Um, but essentially, they're saying we as a society now are in this languishing period. So we might have moved past that intense traumatic response, but languishing is the absence of flourishing. And they're saying as a society now, we're not flourishing. We're okay. We're better than where we were a year ago having this conversation, but we're not flourishing. And I, I think that's huge too, right? So with trauma, we'd like to think it's cyclical and, and certainly it comes back as reactions over time, but like we're still in that state of we're not where we used to be right. um, and, and we're languishing. I thought that was an interesting uh, terminology, but you can definitely Google it and find out more, but they're saying that's where we are as a society. Yeah. And I guess it almost, you almost feel numb mm -hmm. to it, right? Like you're, you know, I think for myself, you know, I, I've been pretty strict with masks and things like that. I, I, I said to my, my wife the other day, I said, I think there was like a three week period where I felt comfortable, you know, going into a store without a mask and then like, it's back to the mask being on. And so there's, but it, it wasn't as a big deal because I'm kind of like numb to, well, and you bring up a, a good point too. So I heard somebody else describe the pandemic as we're all walking around as if everybody else is a biological weapon, right? right? And we're all walking around because I don't know if that person in the grocery store is positive and that I could get COVID from them. Right. I don't know if my third graders have COVID and I can get positive, right? Um, I don't know, you know, in the classroom dynamics or am I going to bring it home to my family and kind of all walking around and that level of stress too. Like, we used to be able to lean down at our students' desk and talk to them or, you know, give them a high five or do all of these different kinds of things. So not only have those social dynamics change, but there's this level of fear or uncertainty in all of our social interactions. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, for not, sure. It's not positive, but. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like the volcanoes now stopped erupting. We're now living in that time where there's just now all the ash in the atmosphere and, you know, maybe the bad part's over but now it's getting through all the other stuff that goes along with it. I, well, and who knows if the volcano is going to erupt again. So right, and right. I think that's the, the level of fear or trauma that we're talking about too. Like we don't know Delta variant. We don't know what this next phase of this looks like. Right. So we all have that in the back of our head that that volcano could erupt again. Right. right. And that, that kind of response. And so as a, as an educator, in, in our classroom. And I, and I know, like, we, we just talked a lot about COVID, but I mean, there's a whole lot of, like you said, trauma that that has nothing to do with COVID and was teachers had students with prior to COVID and long after COVID's gone, there are going to be kids in your classroom who've experienced trauma. What is it that a teacher or an educator can look out for in a classroom that that will help them know this child is experiencing some trauma because I, I would imagine it's not the same for every child in a classroom. Yeah. So, so that's a huge point, right? So we could all experience the same event, but it manifests differently in us, right? So that goes back to coping skills and resiliency and all of those kinds of things. And the best comparison I have it to is as an adult, if you have siblings and you lost a parent, right? So you all experience the same level of loss, say your mother passed. We all experienced that at the same level. It was all our mother, but at the same time, not every sibling responds the same way to that traumatic event, right? Somebody becomes the, the ultra busy uh, planner and then somebody else kind of dives into themselves and, and becomes, you know, much more introverted. So 
you know, that's adults. So then when we look at children, the same thing happens. So even children within the same home experiencing the same event could react differently. So um, when I say, what should we look for? It's anything that that's a red flag to us any other time, right? So struggling academically, whether they're struggling behaviorally, whether we've noticed a significant change in their behavior. Now you're going to say, well, that's, you know, so what does that have to do with trauma? So one of my biggest arguments about trauma-informed practices is that if we have a trauma-informed classroom, we're treating all students as if they've experienced trauma, right? Because we might not know what they've experienced. We might not know if the reason the kid is sleeping in our class is because they stayed up playing Fortnite too long or they stayed up because their parents were fighting. You know, we don't necessarily, and it's not our job as educators to have to differentiate those kinds of things too, right? Our job as educators is to respond to it. So we might see a child who is, for lack of better words, defiant to us, right? But what does that defiant come through? Is it related to trauma? And we know that students who experience trauma can have higher levels of defiance. We know that students who've experienced trauma could have higher levels or uh, lower levels of engagement in the classroom. We know that there's all of that correlation to those types of behaviors, but it might not be what's causing it. And I think that's what's frustrating as a, a teacher too, is because you are a fixer. Like you go into the classroom and you, you want to, to fix things for your students. But I, I would say in a trauma-informed response, we're not trying to fix that child. We're trying to create an environment where that child could do well. Right. So we don't have to go around and say, well, this child has five adverse childhood experiences. You know, they've gone through divorce and substance abuse and all of those different kinds of things. And as a result, they're experiencing X, Y and Z. My response is I want to set up a classroom, whether you've experienced five adverse childhood experiences, two adverse childhood experiences or none that you're going to do well. So, Ron, I know that's not like a direct answer to your question, um, but, I, you know, that's kind of my perspective on it. No, but I think it, I mean, it really is because it's almost, I don't know, Joe, like when Bobby was talking, it reminded me of like UDL. Well, like, or, or providing them a safe learning environment where they can come, they can feel safe, they can feel cared, they can take risks, and then learning can really grow. And it would start with relationships, right? And we always say relationships before rigor. So before you come in and, and laying down rules, talk to them. So then maybe not that. I guess when, when that behavior happens, Bobby, right? Like you have to, instead of just issuing a consequence, first ask yourself why it's happening. And then I think the easiest way is, is hopefully the relationships already established where you can say, Hey, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And you know, whether or not, I always like to say, if you want to talk to me, that's great. If you don't feel comfortable talking to me, let's see if we can get you, you know, to the counselor, you know, to whoever can help you. But it, but it sounds like Ron, right. Relationships before rigor. Yeah, because before, you know, if, if, if they have experienced all those traumas or any, anything, I'm hungry. I didn't eat breakfast. I don't know when that next meal is going to come. Can, can I sit here and learn another strategy? Someone's trying to push down about multiplication when I don't care about multiplying because everything else that's going on. I know as adults, sometimes it's hard to keep everything in perspective. Um, so as an eight or a nine year old child, yeah, I guess if they don't feel safe. How can they, how can they grow? Well, and, and so there's two points out of that. So if we're going to talk in hashtag Twitter world, right? So we could do relationships before rigor, but we could also do Maslow before Bloom, right? Yep. And that level of safety in the classroom 
and it's psychological safety too. So we know that the children are physically safe in our classroom. But one of the things we know about students who have experienced trauma is their amygdalas are constantly in fight, flight, freeze response, right? Because that's the, the muscle or, or what they've wired themselves to think because they felt unsafe multiple times, right? So we need to create a, a classroom that is predictable and safe for them so their, their little amygdalas can calm down, right? Going into mindfulness too, and that's kind of the, the intersection here, but, and they feel safe in the classroom. And you know, we also know that students who experience trauma often have a hard time building relationships. And I think that's one thing as teachers need to remember too, is that child is not you, it's their experiences and their circumstances, right? So maybe you're not, and Joe, you, you, you touched on this, maybe you're not their adult, right? Like you're not their person, but finding that person for them. Because students who've experienced trauma, maybe males are difficult to relate to because they've had a problem with males in the home. It could be females. It could just be adults in general because the adults in their lives who were supposed to keep them safe didn't, right? So how can I trust you? Um, and one of the things that I've inherently struggled with uh, in schools, and I might have mentioned this when I when I talked to your group, is the school system in and of itself makes relationships really hard because for students who experience trauma, I'm essentially saying here's 180 days to build a relationship with somebody, and then after 180 days, I'm going to end that relationship and move you on to the next classroom. Right. And I think that's what's hard too, right? Like we're already perpetuating this cycle where for a student who experienced trauma and who's kind of lack of better words, caught onto it, they know at the end of the school year, you're no longer their safe person anymore. And they have to kind of move into it again uh, and looking at that. So it's hard, right? So that's why I'm a huge advocate of moving up days and, and having those relationships across buildings. But we also know our system doesn't always work that way, right? And so. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah. So like in a, you know, Joe and I teach in a, a smaller district where, from third grade to eighth grade, you're in the same building where maybe that is really helpful because you might be in seventh grade, but you still have that contact with a third grade teacher who you connect it with mm -hmm. and can come back and talk to, you know, if needed. Or, um, or think about the relationship you could build with the principal and the vice principal. Right. If you're there, you know, who you might not get as much contact with as, as you were if you were, you know, their teacher. Um, then those relationships can really foster and grow. I guess if your if your principals and vice principals want that, right, want that relationship to happen, which I think most do. And I think also, uh, Bobby, you touched on something. You know, I think sometimes as a teacher, it may be hard to have that student in your class and you realize that you're not their person, right? Like, you, you know, for some people, it would be very easy to be like, I want to say annoyed, but like almost like, you know, feel disrespected. Like, well, what do you mean? I'm a caring person too, but. I know. will say it hurt the first couple of times. Like, what do you mean you don't want to talk to me? Right. Why don't right. you want to talk to me? I'd want to talk to me, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the strategies and, you know, it, I can't take credit for it. I found it on Pinterest, but I know it's going around too, is this purple folder strategy. And I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what it is, is you might not be that kid's person or you might need a break because you can feel within yourself that this kid is frustrating me. Right. And I know if the kid stays in my class, like it's not going to be good for either of us. So the purple folder strategy is something simple and it could be a purple ball. It could be an orange folder. You know, like those are kind of like the the small details of it. But essentially, you know, Joe and Ron in your school, you could have a, a purple folder 
and Joe's really struggling with, you know, Zach and Zach's having a rough day. And he says, Zach, why don't you take this down uh, to Mr. Nober's class? And there's a little note on it. Like, and you know that that's the sign that Zach was having a hard time in class. And, and Ron, then you can have a quick conversation with Zach and check in and just see how they're doing. And what it does is one, gives a sensory break for that child to walk down the hallway. But two, it gives that space for them to touch it, touch base with their safe person. Uh, and it also gives Joe that those few minutes he might need to kind of regain himself as well. Um, I've seen schools do it with the school secretary, you know, because the secretary is usually always at the desk. Right. Um, you know, and jokingly, I've seen schools do it with like a dictionary. You know, like Miss Anderson down in the office doesn't know how to spell this word. Can you take the dictionary down there? And it's something funny, right? And they, I can't imagine what they think of the secretary. <laughs> you know, like it gives them a chance to engage in me. And, you know, especially if your secretary has been trained in tra- trauma-informed practices, just having that quick conversation with that student, checking in with them. Hey, I really like your shoes today. Or I noticed you have a new shirt on. You know, like just like those little relationship-building strategies with somebody else in the building. You know who um, that you know, sounds we, like? That, that sounds like Mrs. Morrow. <laughs> right, Bobby? Like, have you had, I don't know if you've ever seen Jenny in action, but anytime, you know, she's always just like that, talking to the kids, like, hey, ha, you know, I guess to build those relationships. Mm-hmm. So when you've seen, like, how do the secretaries feel? Because the secretary is a pretty busy job. In yeah, a lot I of think the- it's, it's finding that person that could be consistent too, right? And the other thing is, like, we, we all have to be on the same page because if you send that purple folder with a kid and you didn't really need the purple folder and you're like, Zach, what is this? I didn't need this purple folder. Like, your, your cover's blown, right? And, and the purpose of it is gone. But developing that system and finding who that person is, maybe it's the school nurse. You know, maybe it is your, your team grade level teacher. Um, maybe you do it by hallway, you know, and kind of kind of doing those different kinds of things. There's also value. And I think we can all remember, like when your teacher got to ask you to take something down to the office, like how powerful you felt. Right. And I know there's memes trending about those kinds of things, but like that kid knows it for a second, you trust them to take that down too. And that's really empowering. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, you could set it up where there's different color folders for different teacher teams. You you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Just like you said, just for that, everybody gets a break. Mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Ron, me, me, you and Gary in school too, man. Yep. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's definitely a, a team there, you know, yeah. I think it definitely something we should uh, bring up in, you know, at our school as well. But know. now, so I'm the teacher that's going to get the folder and the student. What if I'm teaching a lesson, you know, like at, at that point of the game, I guess the kid hangs out for a little bit, or I guess it's known if this kid's coming with the folder, a little bit of a break is okay, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it could be like, hey, Zach, why don't you just about, I need help stapling a couple of these papers, or could you do this for me? Or, you know, hey, thanks for the folder. Why don't you have a seat while I finish teaching? You know, like being transparent with the kids, right. but you could have them help out with something until you get a break, or really just walking out of the classroom and taking that break might be the few minutes that, that kid needs to be able to come back, so... Right. Or I was like you said, like just saying, hey, Zach, thanks for the folder. Hey, man, you, you look how you feeling today? Or, you know, like you said, your shoes, they're awesome. Or I love the haircut or the shirt or whatever. Just just that. That could just be enough. And I guess that's all set up within the system. Mm-hmm. And it could even be then Ron knows that that kid needs to check in later on in the day. So he can't check in with him mm-hmm. then. 
but he knows maybe right. at lunch that's a particular student I need to see. So, right. or I stand out in the hallway at the dismissal to try and catch, you know, Zach coming yeah. down the hallway or something like that. Yeah, that's a great idea. I, I love that. When you gave the the presentation at school or for our school, there was you gave a talk about triggers, triggers that things that could trigger trauma that you may have in your classroom mm -hmm. and not even recognize that these could be triggers for trauma. And again, like you were talking about having that trauma informed classroom where you're just setting up for everybody to be successful. What are some, some things that you've seen that could be triggers that we may not recognize? Yeah. So this is always hard, right? Because I, I don't think we can ever yeah, it's not an exhaustive list. Right, 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 exactly. But I think there are certain things that we can do. So again, going back to that safety piece, um, we want students to feel safe in the classroom. So a lot of safety comes with predictability, right? If I'm not spending my time worrying about what's next, I can focus on the task. And that's for all students, but especially students who've experienced trauma. So we're going to want to have a level of predictability in our class. So whether, and elementary teachers are great at it, Secondary teachers, being a high school teacher, we kind of let that fall off, right? But having the agenda on the board, what can be a, a, a for lack of a better word, the trigger for a student is a change to regular routine. So making sure that students know that there's going to be a change, right? So maybe you're having an assembly that day. If your school policy allows it, telling them that there's going to be a fire drill. You know, even things with transparency, like I'm going to turn the lights off right now you know, kind of announcing before you do certain things. So looking at maybe, you know, that when you close your door, it's going to make a loud sound and maybe sound is a trigger for some of your students. So I'm going to close the door right now and it's going to make a loud sound. And they're probably like, well, you told us that every single day, right? Like just that level of predictability <laughs> oh, yeah. for students. Um, so even small things like that, noticing what's in your classroom, what's hanging around your classroom. So I was a history teacher. You know, Civil War comes along, Civil War posters are up. Well, for students who've experienced violence, that's probably not the best thing to do. And I look back at that now and I'm like, man, like I, you know, I really messed up, but it's not something to beat yourself up over. It's just to be aware of it. Right. And this is a controversial one, I, I think, with teachers too. I prefer telling students when you're going to be absent, if you know you're going to be absent. Mm. I, I was just going to ask that because, you know, I could see that be a huge trigger. And, you know, I think as a teacher, sometimes you feel like I need to keep that a secret because I'm, um, I'm taking a sick day, but it's really to go do this or so, you know, you know like, Yes, we we actually do do other things when we take a sick day sometimes. Right. <laughs> not me, not me. I swear. Asia, playing hooky and going to the. No, but just hey, I'm not going to be in tomorrow. I just want you to be aware. Yeah, right. Even just um, showing them where your subfolders are can be reassuring, right? Because you have been that safe, consistent person for this child. And to have another adult come into the classroom who they don't know, who's not going to have this level of predictability, can be difficult for students. So even if you don't know you're going to be out, explaining to the class and maybe doing it, you know, monthly or, or quarterly, here's where my subfolder is. I care so much about you guys that I put all of your names in here, they, that I put this in here, and just showing that level of preparedness that you have with the sub and being able to do that as well. And maybe even giving the kids sub tasks. So when we have a sub, Joey, you're in charge of making sure everybody gets their school supplies. 
you know, or, you know, Mikey, you're in charge of writing the date on the board, you know, kind of giving them that level of feeling and predictability could help too. But that, you know, it, it's hard, right? Because you don't know when you're going to be out, but that just helps to create a level of predictability for the students. And then establishing those routines mm-hmm. and, and teaching the students, right? If maybe you're dealing with the sub and something goes wrong, how to respectfully say, you know, because I've gotten a lot of those sub notes that say these kids can run this classroom by themselves right. um, because they do like they uh, teaching third grade, even, you know, students with IEPs, students with trauma, students without trauma. They, they, a lot of kids don't like school, right? I mean, it's, it's proven they come in with high interest in kindergarten and then it's like the roller coaster ride. So to have that safe environment saying, you know, I'm coming to school today. I know it's going to be a good day. I know my teacher cares about me and this is how the day is going to go because it's Monday and we spend all September, right, Ron? Like just focusing on this is, this is how we're going to come in in the morning. This is how we're going to come in in the morning if, you know, when, when the stuff doesn't work by like, right. And the, you can't get on the Chromebooks and the smart board's not working and there's nothing projected, but you know, there, you might have to look on the whiteboard. We don't have chalkboards anymore, but there's a whiteboard over here. So, you know, practicing for that and prepping, I think is huge. Sure. I think, you know, there's another strategy in there too. So when your day is not going well, right, your Chromebooks won't turn on. Being transparent and saying, this is really frustrating. Let me take three breaths right now and sh- and modeling that for the kids too and kind of that emotional regulation, you know, and that's good for all of our students and kind of looking at that and, you know, because you're going to have bad days too um, and, and kind of preparing them and giving those strategies. So students who've experienced trauma often don't have those levels of emotional regulation, right? Their, their brains neurologically have been impacted. Uh, by the trauma to whatever degree that may be. So being able to give them those strategies and modeling those strategies is huge. But I think it's great that you set up those routines in September and, and kind of doing it. And when you have a new student in your class, maybe remodeling some of those routines too. Or or coming back from those breaks. Yes. Or, but, but even something that you just said, uh, for so many, we've been doing, uh, you know, how you're starting off the day, how you're feeling and for, for a few years now, and it, I mean, definitely before the first part of COVID, which was great, but for me to start off saying, I'm a three, I'm a three, and, and I forget who, oh, it was Laura Spencer. She was like, well, are they ever going to see you not as a, not as a three? Or is it, you know, are you just showing them that it's never okay to not be a three? Um, so yeah, that openness and, mm-hmm. you know, when sometimes we have some issues with our with our internet services, you know, to, 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 to watch them see Mr. Paul go, you know what, before I throw this keyboard through the wall and then it's who wants to see me do that. And they all freak out. I'm like, well, hold on, let's take a deep breath um, and restart the computer. Uh, But yeah, I guess that is to model, you know, the correct way, the responsible way to, to deal with those adverse situations. Sure. And Ron's mindfulness Mondays, they, they were awesome you know, in the morning announcements. We started to do that. I think after your mindfulness session, we started to do a, every mind, a mindfulness Monday. And it was like a, just An some little practice. Like that yeah. So just to kind of encapsulate the, the triggers, right? Um, you know, and I, I could share this when I present, but like, there's a good example. Like if we were to go to New York City pre-pandemic, right? right. And, you know, maybe we're there for the holidays and we're there with our friends and family and we're, we're taking kind of the day to enjoy, to kind of soak in the sights and sounds and to look at like the Macy's window displays and 
to smell kind of like the hot dog stands and the other smells of the city, you know, and, <laughs> and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, like it's an enjoyable thing, right? And we're not, we're, we're focused on our interactions and we're, we're taking in all the senses and, you know, it, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, we're having a good day, but flip it around. And what if you were in the city alone at three o'clock in the morning, right? Like, are you paying attention to the smells? No, you're paying attention to who's walking down the street. You're not looking at the windows. You're worried about your personal safety, right? And we're kind of, that's what we're focused on. And a lot of times for our students who've experienced trauma, that's their mindset, right? That it's 3 a.m. in the city. And it has nothing to do with you or your classroom, but that's kind of their brain and their reaction to things that they've been through. So how can we set up our classroom to not feel like 3 a.m. in the city? How do we make it feel safe? Well, we want to go back to here I am. I'm right here. I know that I'm safe right now because I know the next thing that we're going to do is math. And I know where the pencils are, you know, and I know that my teacher is going to help me do these things. And I know if I need a break, here's where I can go. Right. So just kind of decreasing that level of uncertainty because they do feel unsafe and it has nothing to do with you. And maybe, and this is what's the hard thing about trauma and you know, I, I was reading trauma comes back as a reaction, not as a memory, right? Like, so your body has a reaction when trauma kind of wells itself back up is some days the kids are going to feel safe and they're doing great. And you're like, we're making a lot of progress. And then something happens and they come in the next day and it's just like, what, what's going on? Right. And, you know, for our students, maybe it's, they didn't get a birthday card from that parent. You know, maybe it's the anniversary of their grandmother's passing. Right. Maybe they saw something on TV that was traumatic. Um, you know, you don't know what what's triggering it and kind of looking at those different things. So just being mindful that something's going on and how do we get that child back to, to where they need to be? I think that example was was great because I, I as you were saying it, like I just I grew up in in Philadelphia. And I grew up, I went to high school in Center City. And so a lot of my formative years was in Center City. And there is definitely a different level of walking around Center City at 11am on a Tuesday versus I also worked as a midnight to eight security guard at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philly walking around Philly at that time of night, going to work at midnight, every, every sense is heightened. Mm -hmm. You know, like you were saying, the amygdala is constantly firing. Like you are on alert for every sound that you hear, every shadow that pops this way and that way, just that, that fight or flight response is ready to go at any moment. Uh, and I think if you think of a child, being in that sensory overload on an almost consistent basis, you can almost see the exhaustion in it too. Oh, most definitely. It's physically right. exhausting, right? Yeah. Physically, emotionally. Yep. Yeah. Right. And then we cool. wonder why they're not ready to learn in the right. class, right? You know, that's what they're 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 dealing with. Just to give you another example. So my nephews are both in high school and they're basketball players. And they were at a large tournament in Lancaster. I don't know if you guys saw this. Oh, on the yeah, game. yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, thousands of people at this basketball tournament and they had just finished up their game and somebody yelled that there was an active shooter. And so everybody rushed out of the building. My mom just so happened to be with them. So they're there with my grandmother 
or with their grandmother, my, my 17 year old nephew is trying to help her run out as you're jumping over benches and trying to get out of there. And, you know, the, the level of fear that they have there. And, you know, one of the things, and, you know, we talk about active shooters in school, even if there is not an active shooter, the response that your body has Mm -hmm. to that fear is there, right? So my nephews just experienced that and we're starting to process it. And, you know, 17 and 14 year olds act like they're, they're fine. But I worry about the next time they go to a basketball tournament, right? Like that is going to potentially re-trigger. Maybe something falls, right? And it makes a loud sound. Or maybe there's a crowd and there's a fight starting and, and they can feel those emotions welling up. So how do I make it safe for them to go back to a basketball tournament? Well, for, for me, it's let's have an exit plan next time something happens. All right, lesson mm-hmm. learned, right? Like if something were to happen, we all meet at this particular place. Right. If something were to happen, this is the reaction and that level of preparation. When you feel like you're getting emotional about it, what are some strategies you can have within yourself? But having those proactive pieces, but I know that's like a little bit of an extreme. And fortunately, everybody was okay for there. But even just going now back to basketball, and I'm very fortunate that my seven year old nephew and my four year old niece weren't there because that's a whole nother level. Right. Uh, of preparation and emotional processing, just kind of looking at those events, you know, how do we prepare students for the next type of event? you know, and th- even, even little things like Father's Day could be a, a trigger for students, you know, they don't have a father in their life. Right. One of the things, and if you're on social media, you'll probably see it. Don't ask kids how their summer was, right. I was you know, like that should not be a back to school icebreaker because their summer may have been awful. Like they are so looking forward to being back in school because it's safe or they have food to eat or they're not living in an abusive situation or they're not watching their mother struggle with some sort of illness, right? Mentally or physically, or, you know, they were just bored over the summer, but not asking those kinds of questions too. So there's so many different things to do. And maybe it's flipping it. What are we looking forward to in this school year? Well, and you could say the same thing about ending the school year, right? Like you don't do the countdown. And we actually, we don't do a countdown, but we will talk about, hey, look, you know, our time together is coming to a close. How can we handle this? And, you know, why is it okay to be upset? But, you know, you should be happy about the fact that we did get to spend and how special it was. And, And it's like, we tried to take that spin on it. And the kids still, they're starting out every day in June. I'm a two and I'm not a three because although I'm happy schools, you know, we're going to have summer. I'm sad that we're all going to get, you know, we're not going to be here anymore. And you talk about trauma, Bobby, we had one boy the whole year. Great. No issues with his behavior. As soon as we started to have those types of conversation, boom, like, and Ron, you know who I'm talking about where. You know, we would have those safe places. We would go out in those spaces. And when he was ready to talk, he was, he was, and his exact words, I'm just pissed because it's ending. And it's, you know, it, it breaks your heart because what, what, what do you do? Like you, you mm-hmm. just, you, you tell him like, well, you know, our time in third grade is ending, right? But I'm going to be there right down the hall from you next year. And I'm never not going to care about you. But when you're telling that to an eight-year-old where, you know, their idea, like when's lunch 30 minutes. Oh my God, I got to wait. You know, like the, there's no real concept of time. No, um, no. And, and I think we see a lot of students. Um, I even see this with high school students that self-sabotage at the end of the year. 
right? So that behaviorally or academically, and it's not because they want to do poorly. A lot of times we'll see it because if I can end my relationship with you on my terms, that's much safer than knowing this is going to end any other way, right? So we see that self-sabotaging piece, you know, just kind of moving through and looking at that, right? Like we don't want to do a countdown to the end of the school year. I mean, for some of our kids, and this is going to sound harsh, we are counting down to food insecurity. Guess what? In 20 days, you don't know where you're going to eat, right? Right. And and that's a, a scary situation. And they might not consciously know about that, right? But like you said, Joe, having them process and having those discussions and having them in the safe space is, is truly important for our students. And I think Joe, like what you just said, I think is so, yeah, like it, it, it goes back to Bobby, what you were saying, like having the schedule and having a routine and having them prepared, knowing, yep, school is going to end. We are going to talk about it and we are going to have discussions and we're going to do fun things now to celebrate it and mm-hmm. it, you know is so important and I, I you know joe i think that's what what makes you a an awesome teacher is recognizing that recognizing yeah. the fact that i'd rather play because <laughs> <laughs> to me that is the best time of the year you know the the hard work's done all that's behind like i'm like guys you should be proud we made it this far you know especially this year you know Four weeks in a row, we're in school. All of a sudden, bang, our class is quarantined or, oh, the school shut down. You know, like all those adversity, all those hoops that they set on. I'm like, guys, this is, you've earned this. And and it's almost like they'd rather keep going, mm-hmm. which, you know, which, right, like you were saying, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> kudos to me. Like, great. I got eight-year-olds that actually enjoy right. coming to, like, that's great. But you know what I would enjoy even better? If they got that same opportunity in fourth grade. Right. Like if if we talked about uh, I forget who had said it, the middle school kids, you know, to have have a teacher, maybe like Gary in middle school, who is very like, hey, guys, what's up? How's it doing? High fives for everyone. Come in. How you doing? You're upset. Let's not you know, let's not worry about science yet until we figure out why you're upset. Everything's good now. Sweet. Like, let's start playing with this. What what did you learn about gravity from throwing that, you know, like that type of teacher? That's great. But now all of a sudden that class ends and this guy's got to go to maybe a math class that doesn't have a teacher like that. So now they're, I guess they never get to fully relax in the one class because it's always, well, I know this is ending in 40 minutes. Now I got to go here. So that type of psychological trauma, right. Of, of navigating through your day that, I mean, that's almost like, what can we do about that? Yeah. So that's why I'm a huge advocate of trauma informed classrooms, but more importantly, trauma informed schools, right? Because everybody needs to be on the same page, even, you know, so I'm an administrator, I'm on the dark side of administration now, but you know, this discipline needs to be trauma informed, right? Like we can't just suspend a student, send them home and expect them to come back restored and to, to rebuild relationships, right? We need to look at how the math teacher and the science teacher are responding to students on the same thing, because Guess what? That student is going to have behaviors in math if it's not a trauma-informed environment. They can't help it. You know, so the other thing I was going to say was we see students self-sabotage. Part of the reason students don't do well at lunch and recess and we see a spike uh, in lunch and recess behaviors is because those are also unsafe, unstructured, unpredictable places, right? For students who struggle with regulation, for students who have experienced trauma and they feel unsafe in those environments, I mean, look, I still feel unsafe sometimes in the cafeteria. Like it's loud, it's noisy, it's chaotic, right? How does that, how do we create safe spaces during lunch for our students? How do we make sure every teacher is on the same page, right? 
you know, how do we respond when somebody spills their milk in the classroom, in, in the cafeteria? You know, are, are cafeteria workers trauma-informed? Are our recess mm. aides trauma-informed? Do the recess aides know when suddenly that kid's sitting alone? It's not because they don't like basketball and don't want to play basketball. Maybe something's going on and how do they respond? You know, so making sure in bus drivers, bus drivers are huge. Yeah. Right? They are the first interaction and the last interaction a kid has every day. So kind of having those pieces as well. And in all fairness to them, they don't get the same training. And in all fairness to teachers, and I often say this and I joke about it, teachers do not get training in trauma, right? One of the silver linings uh, over the past year is that we're starting to talk about trauma, you know, in schools and trauma-informed care. And all of those things are coming up as the, these buzzwords in education. But, you know, I always say that if at, when you were going to school to be a teacher, if they told you you're going to have students who experience abuse, if they told you about you're going to have students with food insecurity, if they told you you're going to have students with mental health issues in your classroom, like if they told you how hard it truly was and that there are going to be days that you leave your classroom and drive home crying because you're concerned about students or that you can't sleep at night because you're concerned about students, would you have become a teacher, right? Like if they really taught us all of those things at the beginning. Would we have gone into this field? I mean, teaching's hard enough without those things. Right. So, you know, we can't knock ourselves and, and our system because we don't know. But now that we know what is no do no better, do better, right? Yep. Uh, and kind of moving forward. And that's the huge piece of why I'm passionate about trauma is because nobody knows. You know, I didn't know until you know I started learning about it. So when I look back and I'm like, man, like I could have been a better teacher, but now I just want to move forward being a better educator. Yeah. Now, what do you, I, because I will tell you, I had an incident with discipline when, when I first started and I was, I was, I was upset. I mean, I had a student come to me, like they were going to fight me, cursing at me, cursing at me. And, you know, I, I sent them down to the, the vice principal's office who was in charge of discipline and I'm expecting to hear like, oh, he's out of school suspended. He's something. And then like he's in the cafeteria the next day. And I'm like, what is going on? And, and it was, it was the vice principal who was, you know, at that time, clearly much smarter than I am, knew that that student had so many issues at home and really just sat and had a talk with them versus any kind of suspension. But what, what is your reaction to it? Like a teacher who then may be upset that the level of discipline that they thought was expected isn't there? I guess um, my question, reflective question for it is, what do you think that level of discipline, like what were you trying to achieve with that level of discipline? Like, was it for your own satisfaction that this kid was out of your class and that, you, no, oh, I'm, I'm not saying you personally. But no, but I'm saying for me, yeah, like it was like, well, you know, something should happen. You can't do that to me in front of the entire cafeteria and, you know, all. Yeah. So absolutely. It was, it was, it was ego. But you're human, right? So let's not take away that, right? So there's the human, the pride, the respect thing, right? So what I, I think the question is, what is the goal of, of discipline or consequences, right? So did we want that student to go home and spend that day at home? Or did we want that student to learn that that's not an acceptable behavior, right? So maybe for that student, that conversation with the vice principal was what they needed. 
But I think, you know, and so I, I'm now getting into restorative practices, right? Because that's kind of like ties into all of these things sure. is we need to repair that relationship. So I think the piece that was missing is at some point there needed to be something to make sure you got your needs met too, right? right. So you had a need as somebody who had been offended um, or who had something happen to them. And that child had a need as somebody who had done something wrong. So how do we repair those two types of things right now? Maybe that child wasn't in a place to have a conversation with you. And maybe you weren't in a place to have that conversation with a child either, but I, you know, like, so kind of being reflective there, but I think looking at what, what would it take to make you satisfied and what does it take to give that child what they need and kind of taking it with that approach. And I think that's what makes discipline hard because handbooks are easy, right? You do this, you get this much as a consequence. But when we look at restorative or trauma-informed discipline, it's really looking at the needs of those involved and saying this is what makes the most sense. And then, you know, you dive into that equity versus equality, right? right. So, uh, and, and that's a hard discussion across the board, right? Because is it fair, for lack of better words, that one child does something and gets this consequence and another child does the same thing and doesn't get the same consequence, right? right. Where we look at PBIS systems and it's like, well, are we rewarding students for doing what they already should be doing? You know, so there's a lot of philosophical pieces that tie into this. Um, but I think for that student being trauma informed would be like, look, he was having a bad day. I was having a bad day. What can we do to move forward and repair it? You know, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be punitive, though I'm not against suspension either. So, you know, there are times that that's warranted. But I think having the conversations and and you know, the other piece is you don't need to know what's going on at home to have that trauma-informed mindset. Because that's the other thing. Well, if you told me his parents were going through a divorce or this had just happened, then it would feel better. Well, we just need to kind of take it with a grain of salt and say maybe something is going on. Right. And kind of looking at it that way, which is hard. We are human. But I think had there been a discussion in the school about trauma-informed, I would have had a much different outlook on it. Right, sure. because there, there would have already been this expectation on my part that we are, we all deal with trauma or we all deal with things and we have to take things, you know, case by case. Sure. And, and there's something to be said too for how teachers experience. So there's vicarious trauma, like you take on the trauma of your students too. But then there's this level of institutional trauma. Like, so we also don't want to be in a workplace where we are going through abuse or infraction every single day and nothing's being done too. And recognizing right. that our teachers need healing and processing with that too, because being in the classroom is hard. And that's why I'm a huge advocate oh, yeah. of self-care and, and mindfulness and all of those kinds of things too, because you can't go into a classroom every day and get cursed out or have students be defiant or students be aggressive and it not have an impact on yourself as well. So yes. kind of looking at that uh, as a whole school. And that's our, our kind of a segue into to kind of one of the last things we wanted to talk about was, you know, as educators, I think we need to be aware of our trauma that mm -hmm. we're going to deal with, you know, whether it's coming back or just in general. Um, but, you know, maybe specifically coming back after the pandemic and things, what are, what are some things that you think educators themselves need to be aware of, or, you know, watch out for within themselves? I think we need to be emotionally in tune with ourselves, which, um, you know, Joe, you mentioned at the beginning, that is not something you want to do. And it's hard, right? Well, it's much easier to be busy and active and distracted 
than it is to sit with our feelings. Right. Kind of recognizing that and building our own emotional vocabulary. Um, using I statements, I feel this when this happens, right? And kind of recognizing how we feel in a circumstance and, and being in touch with ourselves when we're feeling emotional in the classroom and being okay with the fact that we're feeling emotional in the classroom, but then kind of doing what we need to, to bring that down. Um, self-care is often important and I am passionately hypocritical. And what do I mean by that is that I talk about self-care, um, but I'm terrible at practicing it sometimes, but you know, you can only give so much um, and you do carry the trauma of your students. So uh, I encourage anybody listening to look up vicarious trauma. And the other one is compassion fatigue. And compassion Mm -hmm. fatigue is being tired from caring, right? Like we care so much about our students that it's exhausting mentally, physically, and kind of looking at that. Um, I think recognizing when we're reaching burnout or we need a break is huge. Uh, And maybe that's, asking others to reflect and see if you need a break. Um, you know, maybe asking your significant other or somebody that you care about to kind of say like, Hey, I'm feeling this way. Have you noticed anything? I think there needs to be a level of accountability and caring among our colleagues too, right? Like we're all in this together. So finding that person in your school who can be your accountability partner when you need self-care or you need to be checked or you need to do all of these different things but not finding that person who is toxic, both toxically negative, right? So that person who just sits in the faculty lounge and complains about kids all day, Um, but also that person who's not toxically positive either. That person who's like, well, at least, you know, you didn't get punched in the face today, or at least we still have a job, right? And that doesn't validate how you're feeling. Yeah, that one, I mean, definitely the, the, well, at least you don't have cancer, kind of thing, like makes me nuts at times. Like, you know, they're, they're, yeah, I, that's true. And I recognize that it doesn't make it any better, at, you know, what I'm feeling at the, at the moment. Yeah. So toxic positivity is just as harmful as that person who's always negative, right? So we need that balance of emotions. Um, and I think just researching and learning more about trauma and, and learning about those kinds of things as well. And um, seeking out that information to be better, um, and building relationships with your kids. Cause it does go back to your relationships with your kids. Relationships are the best classroom management, but they're also one of the best healing things for all of us, for ourselves and for our students. But recognizing that with relationships comes the burden of empathy and compassion, right? So those things are a blessing and a curse. They're a lot to carry. Um, they're a privilege to be able to build relationships with kids, but they're hard. Um, so just kind of tapping into ourselves and recognizing what, what we need and asking when you need help. Teachers are terrible about that, right? That's like, hard. It's hard though. It's, it's yeah. hard to, as I know from my standpoint, it is very hard to ask for help um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just putting your nose to the grindstone. and. But asking for help and knowing when to say no are huge <sighs> boundaries in self-care, right? So being able to say no to something uh, is hard. But rec- and, and not saying no, like I'm not going to do that mandated thing that's going to be my evaluation is not the thing <laughs> to do, but maybe no, this year I can't coach soccer because I need this additional time, right? And yeah. not feeling guilty about it is the hard part. Yeah, uh, I mean, teachers, always, you always want to do for the student, right? Most of those things that you're being asked are for the students, mm-hmm. right? like a, an activity or chaperone something or do something, but it is being, I, I think if, if I could give 
any advice to a like first or second year teacher, be okay with saying no sometimes because it can get so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Can you say no as a first year teacher? I, I think you can. I think you can't always say no. Right. Okay. But I think part of the maturity and remember first year teachers are 22, 23 year olds still learning how to adult. I still feel like I'm learning how to adult <laughs> well. Um, but you know, like recognizing what is okay and not okay, right? Yeah. And maybe I said no to this, but I can say yes to this. Right. But guess what? If I say yes, 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 then I'm not gonna be able to say yes to that thing I really want to say yes to. Right. Um well, if, you, so, if you say yes to everything, can you put a hundred percent into all those, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I want to be my best but can I be my best six different Joes trying to navigate with someone else, someone else's vision? Yeah. That being able to say no, it's, a, it's definitely a tough one. Sure. But mentally for mental health, I think it, it, it's huge. And I think, like you said, being able to just do it, knowing when you can say yes and knowing when you can say no right, is helpful. Anything else that, you know, you want to just kind of leave us with about, trauma or things that you think people should know resources there's a lot of different things out there uh we could have talked all day right i could talk about this for days uh there are a lot of great resources out there i think you know the internet has blessed us with a lot of different resources everything from and one of the this sounds so silly but one of my favorite things is sesame street in the communities right so trauma in preschoolers and you know we didn't talk statistics we didn't talk about all of those different kinds of things but Adverse childhood experiences, especially when a child is young, are um, can have a greater impact, but are also sometimes harder to deal with. Because how do you talk to a child about death? How do you talk to a child about incarceration when they're five, right? So Sesame Street in the communities has a lot of great resources. Another organization that I highly recommend is the Attachment and Trauma Network. And they actually work a lot, and we didn't talk about this, but they work a lot with students who are in foster care and who have been adopted. And the nuances of trauma uh, that go with that as well, right? So that could be a podcast in and of itself, but, you know, kind of looking at the attachment and trauma network. I encourage you to take the adverse childhood experiences survey for yourself and get your A score. Not so you can kind of sit around and say, oh, I have six aces, but so it helps you kind of recognize how things that happen to you as a child have an impact. Hmm. Um, Bessel van der Kolk has a book um, called The Body Keeps the Score. And it um, looks at the physical impacts that trauma has on you. So that's a great book to read. Um, the body keeps the score. Is that what it was? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've learned that for real this year that especially dealing back with those feelings, mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with it. That's fine. If the body wants to deal with it, you'll be up dealing with it at 12, one, two, three in the morning. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> well, I talk about, be- you know, chronic pain um, and, you know, illness, those kinds of things. Um, the latest book on trauma is what happened to you. You know, Oprah has been kind of pushing that. I haven't read it yet. It's on my list. Um, but one other book I would encourage you to read um, is The Deepest Well. Um, that's a great one. And then there's one other person. So Dr. <laughs> Melissa Seaton, she's actually a Jersey girl. So that's always oh, yeah. a nice thing. Um, But she has a book and I did this with my staff last year and it's called Teacher's Guide to Trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's something I encourage. It's 20 things kids with trauma wish their teachers knew. So it's specifically written for educators and it's super short. You could read, you know, one in a few minutes, Um, but just things that we as teachers wish we knew. So 
I think that might be my greatest resource is Teacher's Guide to Trauma, 20 Things Kids with Trauma Wish Their Teachers Knew. There's a lot of great resources out there. You can find books and resources and trainings on developing trauma-sensitive schools if that's the route your school wants to go. But even just from a personal piece, I would encourage you to read something or to do an activity to reflect on your own personal trauma and also recognizing sometimes we need to then seek out professional help yep. right? because maybe things are welling up and being okay with that, right? It's okay to not be okay. We hear that a lot, but we don't actually practice it. So recognizing how our own trauma impacts us and what we might need to do to start that healing process, um, but then also strategies to be able to use with our students. And I guess, what was the name of the, the test? Uh, the Adverse Childhood Experiences. When you did your presentation with, with our school, like I, I went back afterwards and, and did that. And it is, it's, it's surprising. You know, it, it definitely made me reflect a little bit. Yeah, it was very informative. Yeah, and you can find it, there's a website called ACES Too High. Um, T-O-O high, and they have the copy of the test, but you could just Google adverse childhood experiences and it'll give you that. The one thing I want to say about that too, is that is meant to be taken by adults to reflect on their childhood. It's not an assessment to be given to students. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, um, I want to leave with is we are educators. We're not clinicians. Right. And so the great thing about that is we're educators, but not clinicians. And we don't have to worry about some of those pieces. The hard thing about it is we want to help our students, right? So just kind of recognizing our role is to create trauma-informed environments. And sometimes our students need to be referred out. Sometimes our students need that additional support. We can't take it on all ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to, to kind of end things because it is, like you said, I think at the start, teachers want to fix things mm -hmm. and to recognize that that's not our role in this. It's to just make a safe environment absolutely make make that safe environment and notice behaviors right yep. and and report behaviors right i guess that sure yeah that's a whole nother piece right the reporting of it but yeah yep. absolutely see something say something right yeah yeah. So, yeah bye thank you so much you know i, I know you're you're at work right now i am <laughs> It, um, we appreciate you taking time from that to to join us again, and and really just help inform our our listeners. Yeah, and and us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me and giving me a platform to talk about things I care about. So, and I'm still learning and growing in these areas. Too. Teacher nerds, teacher nerds, knocking on your door. Open up, let's take your teaching further than before. Give it a try, don't be shy. There's nothing there to lose. Worst thing that happens, kids get pain on their shoes. We're talking teacher nerds. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor, or anywhere you listen. When you subscribe, be sure to give us a review and tell a friend. Visit us at teachernerds.com. Follow us on Twitter at teachernerds, on Instagram at teachernerdspodcast, or email us, teachernerds at gmail.com. And remember, we're nerds with a Z. Most importantly, thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds.